Today's sermon is the last in our sermon series on the book of Ephesians. Speaking for myself, I'm rather sad to reach the end. I've really enjoyed our journey through this great Bible book. Our second Bible reading is Ephesians 6, verses 23 and 24 on page 11. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Before we start, let's pray together for God's help. In Job chapter 23, Job says, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my daily bread. Heavenly Father, please give us the same hunger for your word that Job had. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Shortly before his death in 1985, the legendary actor and director Orson Welles added some words to the screenplay of a movie he was acting in. The movie was titled Someone to Love, and it's probably now best known for these words that Welles added to the script. We're born alone, we live alone, we die alone, Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we're not alone. It's a quotation that starts bleakly, then seems to cheer up in the middle, but ends in renewed bleakness. We're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we're not alone. Orson Welles highlights love and friendship as things that make life worth living, but in the final analysis he says they're just a trick, just an illusion, covering up the true state of affairs, our utter aloneness. Orson Welles was a self-declared atheist, and I think it's hard to disagree with that quotation if you believe there is no God and life only exists because of a series of unplanned physical events. If I'm just a human-shaped collection of atoms and you're just a human-shaped collection of atoms, then any relationship you and I might have is really just a strange mirage before our different atoms collapse into other forms. The atheist writer Richard Dawkins speaks similarly. He says of the universe, There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But as Christians, thanks be to God, we don't share that outlook. We're persuaded that this world was created by the God of the Bible. We believe he came down into this world in the person of his son so that what is wrong would be made right through his own life, death, and resurrection. 
And in the final lines of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the real and lasting connectedness that believers enjoy with one another and with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's real and it's lasting. Paul finishes the letter with two benedictions. A benediction is a kind of prayer wish. The first benediction in verse 23 is communal. It's a prayer wish to do with Christian community. The second benediction in verse 24 is more personal. It's about the relationship each individual believer has with Jesus. For the rest of the sermon, we'll look at both prayer wishes, beginning with the communal benediction in verse 23. The communal benediction, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer wish, if we boil it down, is for his readers to have peace and also love with faith. The word translated faith there in verse 23 could also be translated faithfulness. The Tyndale commentary on Ephesians explains it like this. Faith, in the sense of faithfulness, is a fruit of love. Faith, in the sense of faithfulness, is a fruit of love. Love with faithfulness is a love that keeps on coming. It's an every-season love instead of just a summertime love. And we can tell from the end of verse 23 that those things aren't an illusion. Peace and love with faithfulness come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. They owe their existence to God. Orson Welles might say they're an illusion, but the Bible tells us they're God-given. Let's consider each in turn. Peace and then love with faithfulness. In the book of Ephesians, peace is a prominent word. It's used eight times in the book, more often than any other book in the New Testament apart from the Gospel of Luke and the book of Romans, both of which are much longer than Ephesians. So by the time Paul says, peace be to the brothers, in verse 23, he has already given that word fresh power. One of the key messages of this book is that in Christ we can have peace with one another because in Christ we have peace with God. Many of you will remember Adina who attended our church for a while last year. Adina's mother who lives in Israel was in New York in December and she came to our carol service. I got into conversation with her after the service and she told me about an organization named One Heart that she's involved with in Israel. One Heart brings together Jewish women who believe in Jesus as Messiah and Palestinian women who also follow Jesus. Jewish Christians and Arab Christians brought together in this organization, One Heart. My jaw dropped open as I heard about this group because, as you probably know, the divide between Jewish people and Arab people in Israel is very difficult to bridge. Adina's mother showed me the WhatsApp group for One Heart. 
And it was a joy to see all those messages shared between Jewish women and Arab women experiencing peace with one another because they all have Jesus in common. Someone might say that Christianity isn't the only thing in the world with the power to bring people together who are usually divided. Sports can bring usually divided people together. So can the arts. So can romance or working for the same company. But the unity Christians experience isn't like any other example of unity that we might be able to think of. Listen to this from earlier in Ephesians. Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new person out of the two, thus making peace. That's from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is talking about the division between Jews and Gentiles. How can a Jewish person be truly united to a Gentile person? In Christ the two are made one. In Christ the two are made one because he is one and believers in him are joined to him. He's the head, we're the body parts. He's the vine, we're the branches. He's the husband, we're the bride. Those are all biblical illustrations of our unity with Christ, our oneness with him. And they speak of something that's really happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Union with Christ is so real that Paul can say in Ephesians 2 verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Paul knows believers are still living on planet Earth, but because of our union with Christ, there's a true sense in which we're also in heaven. It's as if the Spirit stretches us out like spaghetti so that even though our feet are still on Earth, we're also able to sit down with Jesus in heaven. Well, if I have union with Christ and you have union with Christ, then you and I are one in him. I'll read those words from Ephesians 2 again. Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new person out of the two, thus making peace. That's how Jesus unites usually divided people. He does it by bringing them together in himself. Peace be to the brothers, Paul says. Brothers is shorthand for the whole Christian community, the family of God, male, female, old and young. We ought to experience and enjoy peace with one another, just like the Jewish and Arab women involved with one heart in Israel. Division among real Christians is a problem that should be addressed. That's why Paul says in another of his letters, in Romans chapter 12, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We should do everything we can on our side of things to seek peace with our fellow believers. In practice, that might actually mean kicking up a fuss, causing temporary strife for the sake of long-term Peace is an example of how that might work out. During the pandemic, there was a mega church in California that stubbornly refused to implement the mask mandate. 
and other restrictions imposed by state authorities. And this was before the vaccines had come along. The pastor of the church declared in August 2020, there is no pandemic. Those were his words. If I had been an elder in that church in 2020, I hope I would have had enough courage to kick up a fuss and cause temporary strife about that. Kicking up a fuss would not have been divisive in the last analysis because there was already division in the church between those who agreed with the pastor and those who feared for the lives of especially the elderly people in that megachurch. The point is that sometimes Christians who seem divisive are really trying to deal with a serious problem that is already causing division. They're kicking up a fuss in the short term because their goal is peace in the long term. But of course, sometimes the Christians who seem divisive are actually divisive. They get a twisted pleasure out of causing disunity. In the New Testament, pastors are given a mandate to expel a divisive person from the local church. It's done on a three strikes and you're out basis. You can read about it in Titus chapter 3 verse 10. And that goes to show how important peace is to the Christian community in God's sight. It's so important in God's sight that a divisive person cannot be allowed to remain in the local church. A church with internal strife is a church with a problem that must be solved. And if in the future you find yourself in a local church troubled by conflict and division, ask yourself, are steps being taken to deal with this strife? Do I see steps being taken to deal in a godly way with this strife, this division? If not, if you do not see those steps being taken, then you may need to leave that church. The church is supposed to be the great exhibition of God's goodness. Peace among the brothers is certainly part of that. But Paul wants more than peace alone. In his verse 23 prayer, which he also includes love with faith, or as I said earlier, love with faithfulness. Paul probably has in mind the Old Testament concept of steadfast love, which I noticed was in one of the readings we had earlier, either the congregational reading or the first Bible reading. Steadfast love is a settled and reliable love. It's a love that doesn't depend on the loved person being lovable. We'll be hearing more about steadfast love in our sermon series on the book of Ruth in the coming weeks. Paul wants the Christians receiving his letter to have that kind of love, love with faithfulness. The great German Christian leader Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in a wedding sermon, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Sounds like he's got it the wrong way around, but he's exactly right. That is exactly how covenants such as the marriage covenant work. 
they provide the framework within which love is shown. We could reword that Bonhoeffer quote like this. It is not the love of believers for one another that sustains the new covenant. It's the new covenant that sustains their love. The new covenant in Christ's blood provides the framework within which Christian love is shown. What does steadfast love look like in the local church? What will it mean for us in practice? The temptation we need to overcome is to befriend some people in the local church while freezing out others. It's tempting to do that because it makes church predictable and more comfortable. But steadfast love is expected among believers and it is much more demanding than simply finding some people to be friends with. We're expected to show it to all Christians, especially those who belong to our own local church. And so freezing out certain church members isn't an option. Steadfast love is more than tender-heartedness, although that's part of it. When you track it through the Bible, you find that steadfast love is very practical. It takes an interest in whether someone is fed and clothed and housed. just occurs to me that Adina, who I mentioned earlier, was housed for a couple of weeks by members of our church. That was a, a demonstration of steadfast love for a fellow Christian. Steadfast love is more eager to serve than to be served. It was demonstrated supremely by God himself in the death of Jesus on the cross. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saw humanity's desperate need, our need for the forgiveness of sins, and God took action to meet that need. Anyone who trusts in the powerful death of the Son of God is forgiven because the Son took the punishment for sin in our place. For Jesus' love meant nails through his hands and feet, and a crown of thorns thrust on his head, and the wrath of God poured out upon him. And he loved us with that love. When love goes missing in the local church, then, frankly, you're looking at a church that's lost sight of its saviour. This is my commandment, Jesus says in John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's time to move on to the second of Paul's closing benedictions, his two prayer wishes for the Christians receiving his letter. The benediction in verse 23 was communal, but this next one in verse 24 is a personal benediction. It's personal because it causes each person to look within at his or her own heart to see what's there. Please look down to verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. 
The Bible is the true story of God's love for us. But it's also the true story of our answering love for him. Without his forgiving love for us, we wouldn't be able to love him in any meaningful sense. His love for us restores the possibility of relationship with him. Take away his saving love, and any love we might have for him would be like a teenage fan's futile love for an unreachable pop star. But because God has loved us and entered into covenant relationship with us, our love for him is meaningful. And it's also necessary. If it's absent, there's a problem. Paul says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We need grace from God on a daily basis. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find grace to help in time of need. Grace to help in time of need. Day after day, we depend on God's grace. But according to verse 24, we can't expect to receive his ongoing grace unless we love Jesus with love incorruptible. It's not that our love for Jesus earns God's favour, his grace. There's a verse in the New Testament that says, we love because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4 verse 19. His love for us led to the salvation that he himself paid for through the death of the Lord Jesus. But we are expected to answer God's love with love of our own, for him. Listen again to 1 John 4.19, the verse I just read. You could read it like this. We love because he first loved us. But you could also read it like this. We love because he first loved us. I think John is talking about love for the believers in 1 John mainly, but what he says there is also true of our love for God. We love because he first loved us. Sometimes the Bible shines its spotlight directly on our part. What's expected of us? Our responsibilities. And verse 24 is one of those times it tells us to keep loving Jesus so that God will keep giving us grace. It puts the spotlight on our answering love, a love that should be incorruptible. <clears throat> the word Paul uses has two meanings. Immortal, incorruptible, immortal, but also truthful or sincere. I think our English word incorruptible also has those two meanings. Immortal, truthful. And both those meanings apply to the love we should have for the Lord Jesus. It's a love that will never die. 
because through God's mercy we have eternal life and it's a love that should be sincere. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son ends with the movie camera on the older son, not the more famous younger son. The younger son is the one who leaves home with his inheritance, squanders it, and then returns to an unexpectedly forgiving and loving welcome from his father. But at the end of the parable, the movie camera turns to the older son, the one who stayed on the family farm with his father throughout the younger son's misadventures. And what we discover at the end of the parable is that the older son's love for his father has run out. The older son has no love left for his father. He says to his father, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. There's no love for his father in those words, just hostility, even hatred. And the older son's lack of love there at the end of the parable means he misses out on his father's grace. There's a party going on inside the house to celebrate his brother's homecoming, but the older son is stuck outside. His lack of love keeps him from enjoying the good things his father is generously offering at the party. If the older son's love for his father had been incorruptible, he would have come inside and enjoyed the party. But his love turned out to be hollow and rotten. In the parable, the father represents God. And one of the lessons of the parable is that lost love for God keeps a person from receiving God's grace. Jesus is worthy of your love, your answering love. The 5th century bishop, Cyril of Alexandria, 5th century AD, can help us fix our gaze upon Jesus once again. Here's what he says in his book on the unity of Christ. He says this about Jesus. God was in humanity. He who was above all creation was in our human condition. The invisible one was made visible in the flesh. He who is from the heavens and on high was in the likeness of earthly things. The immaterial one could be touched. He who is free in his own nature came in the form of a slave. He who blesses all creation became accursed. He who is all righteousness was numbered among the transgressors. Life itself came in the appearance of death. All this followed because the body which tasted death belonged to no other but to him who is the Son. Is your love for Jesus 
incorruptible? Or has it withered into nothingness, like the older son's love for the father in the parable of the prodigal son? One way to know the answer to that question, is your love for Jesus incorruptible, is to return to the previous benediction in verse 23. Love for Jesus leads to love for his people and it leads to a commitment to Christian unity, peace among the brothers. If you're showing up to church and supporting the ministry of the local church and you're not stirring up division, then the signs are good. You're coming into the party instead of staying outside. You're enjoying God's grace within the Christian community. But in the last analysis, only you can know what is going on inside your own heart. Only you can know if love for Jesus is present within it. And if it's not, and you want it to be as I hope you do, then call out to God for it, and he can create it and stir it up. According to Orson Welles, love is an illusion designed to hide our aloneness. But the book of Ephesians closes with words about believers' communal love and our personal love for Jesus. And these loves aren't make-believe. By the power and mercy of God, they are incorruptible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all good things come from you. And so we pray that you would make our love for Jesus incorruptible and keep it incorruptible. Thank you that our love for Jesus is not futile because he has brought us into relationship with himself through his atoning death. We pray that our church would be a community of peace and steadfast love. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.